Talk Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Chris Degenia on Talk Show. It is Friday, May 6th, 2011. We've been covering the Book of Matthew. At the rate I'm going, it's going to take seven months to do the Book of Matthew, but I, I think that might be a good thing, right? I think it really needs an in-depth Christian identity analysis. Last week, um, from Matthew, we found in Matthew chapter 3 why John was baptizing, because Malachi, the book of Malachi, prophecies that John would baptize, would, would cleanse the sons of Levi. And if anybody else besides the sons of Levi were baptized by John, well, that's simply incidental. The prophecy was fulfilled. Yahshua Christ was was baptized because according to the law, the sacrifice had to be washed. He was our lamb. He was our sacrifice. He had to be washed in the Levitical ritual which is what John the Baptist, who was a Levite, actually did. The word of Yahweh is perfect and fulfills his law. The priests also had to be washed. We see in, um, and I quoted in Exodus and in Numbers, where Moses washed the sons of Aaron, washed the priests before they attended to the sacrifices and the rituals in the temple. So, John the Baptist also fulfilled that. And in that manner we see that Christ, the perfect sacrifice, fulfilled the law of God in every way. Aside from that, we learn from the book of Malachi that there were priests that Malachi prophesied whose sacrifices Yahweh would not accept. He wouldn't accept the sacrifices of the priests for two reasons. First, as he starts out his prophecy in Malachi, Yahweh loved Jacob but hated Esau. Second, Judah married the daughter of a strange god. And we see that there were Canaanites and Edomites in who had infiltrated their way into the priesthood, and that's evident from the histories of Josephus and the testimony of Eusebius in his ecclesiastical history. For that reason, as we saw in Malachi, Yahweh stated that his covenant is with Levi. He had to state that. He had to make that affirmation as an indication to us that that's why he was talking about the strange God whose children Judah had and his hatred for Esau, because they had infiltrated the priesthood. That's what Malachi is all about. Having that understanding as a historical grounding in the New Testament we can then properly understand the New Testament and, and um, Matthew chapter 3. So now we'll move on to Matthew chapter 4. 
And, and I have a few comments be, before we start. The, um, the natural world around us was created by Yahweh, our God. I, I'm a pragmatic individual, and, and when I read the Bible, I, I don't see the Bible out of context with the natural world, which Yahweh created. To me, his, his word and his creation has to basically be in harmony, or, or I, I feel that I'm misunderstanding his word. And, and I believe that he operates here through the nat- natural world. Could our God perpetrate a supernatural event? Well, of course he could. He, he could orchestrate anything he wanted to. He's God. He created this world. But he created the laws of physics, and, and, and he created this world for a reason. They are the manifestation of his word. We see that in Genesis chapter 1. I believe that this world is the vehicle that that he uses to to um to to show us his power and and what we see in the world around us and and what we feel and touch and experience just like in in John chapter 1 in his epistle that in in 1 John chapter 1 he talks about his hands having touched the word of life which of course was Christ Well, well, here in, in, in Matthew chapter 4, we're, we're going to see Christ interact with the devil. And, and a lot of people want to say that this devil is a, um, a supernatural being. And I don't see it that way, and, and I'm going to explain why here. And, and I'm, going to get, I'm going to get poo-pooed for this one, right? Well, well let me say... That, that I'm going to be criticized for this one, but that's okay. I, I could take it. I got big shoulders. Let, let me say that to think that this devil is a supernatural being, that is just so Catholic. And, and I'm not, you know, I'm just making that statement because that's exactly what the medieval priests would want you to believe. Now, that's exactly what the modern priests would want you to believe, and that's exactly what the real Satan would want you to believe because the real Satan doesn't want you to realize that he is Satan. And, and when I say Satan, I use the term collectively. Just like the body of Christ is the collection of his people in the world, and they are the anointed, and they are the seed of the woman. In that same manner, the synagogue of Satan is the collective children of the serpent, the seed of the serpent in this world. They collectively are Satan, which is simply a Hebrew word which means adversary. That's all it means. But used as a proper noun with the Greek article. And, and yes, they took the Hebrew word and wrote it in Greek, Satanus. Ho, ho Satanus with the article, it, it becomes a proper noun that can describe a particular individual or it can describe a collective entity, just like my, my, my papers on Christogenia prove that the word 
the, the, the Greek phrase, ho Christos, can talk about the individual, the Christ, or it could talk about the collective entity, the children of Israel, the anointed as a group, the anointed of God. Now, if we see this devil as a particular individual, I can't ask, answer what individual. He, he could be one of the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the high priests, not the Pharisees. And, and this is understood from Acts, I think it's chapter 4 or chapter 5. It's probably chapter 5. The Sadducees denied everything spiritual. Now, now I'm not denying things spiritual, and, and I'll talk about that later. But I believe that Yahweh operates through the natural world, and, and Satan is in the natural world. Satan is collectively the offspring of the serpent. The seed of the serpent, which would forever be in enmity with the seed of the woman. The Jew would love you to believe that this was some, some spiritual being that interacted with Christ in, in the desert. Because that runs covered, that the Jew is then able to hide in the flesh. Because then we don't see the Jew, the adversaries of Christ, the adversaries of our God, the adversaries of our race, who Paul says are contrary to all men. We don't see them as Satan. They could get away with all their sins. And, and the Jews love that. They just love that that this Satan in Matthew 4, he's some kind of boogeyman spirit. And, and they got you believing that, and they could get rid of that They could get away with all the sin that they've created. And Christians look at Jews and say, oh, they're good people. They just don't believe in, in Christ. But they believe in God. Well, well, the devils know that there's one God, and they tremble. We're told clearly that if they don't believe Christ, then they are the Antichrist. If they don't believe Christ then they are the Satan, collectively. So I'm going to present the evidence that I have, or, or at least some of it, that this devil of, of um, Matthew chapter 4 is a particular individual. Perhaps he was the, um, one of the Sadducees, one of the rulers of Judea. Perhaps he was the... Um, the David Rockefeller of his time. It doesn't matter. He wasn't worthy of acquiring, uh, of being named by his name in the New Testament, because none of them are worthy of being named by their names. In order to elucidate this, I'm going to start with Job, because a lot of people love to point to Job and say this happened in heaven, but which is, well, which is just a fraud. I'm going to start with Job chapter 1. I'm going to read the first 12 verses in, in the book of Job. There was a man in the land of Uz, whose name was Job. And that man was perfect and upright, and one that feared God and eschewed evil. And there were born unto him seven sons and three daughters. His substance also was 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels and 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 she-asses, and a very great household, so that this man was the greatest of all the men of the East. 
And his sons went and feasted in their houses, every one his day, and sent and called for their three sisters to eat and to drink with them. And it was so when the days of their feasting were gone about that Job sent and sanctified them, and rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them, for all Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now we have to imagine that men had to know at one time that they had to know Yahweh, right? The book of Job is clearly a very, very ancient book. Job was not an Israelite. That's clear from the book. But he was of our Adamic stock, and he lived in the east, which could refer to Arabia, or, or, well, what later became Arabia. It could refer to Babylonia or Mesopotamia or, or, or even the, the Aryan lands of, of Elam and, and thereabouts beyond that, which is modern-day Persia. They were all inhabited by the sons of Noah, by, by this white Adamic race. Abraham kept Yahweh's statutes, judgments, and laws long 400 and something years, and that's in Genesis chapter 25, I believe, and that's over 400 years before the giving of the law at Sinai. Yes, for a long time, our race had forgotten God and gone their own way, but from the days of Noah, it wasn't like that. It couldn't have been. Men had Noah was perfect in his descent, and, and he must have known Yahweh because he dealt with him, so he must have passed that knowledge on to his sons. And there must have been some tradition of, of Yahweh our God amongst his sons, at, at least for some time, until, um, until men forgot and went their own way. And, and Abraham was chosen out of those men who, who had fallen into idolatry. And, and that's how I see the book of Job. And that's how I see Job the individual. Now I will read on from verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, before Yahweh. And Satan came also among them. And Yahweh said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered Yahweh and said, From going to and fro in the earth and from walking up and down in it. And Yahweh said unto Satan, Has thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and upright man, one that fears God and eschews evil? Then Satan answered Yahweh and said, Does Job fear God for naught? Satan's being the accuser here. He's playing his traditional role as the accuser of our brethren. Does Job fear God for nothing? Hast not thou made a hedge about him, and about his house, and about all that he has on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands, and his substance is increased in the land. But put, put forth thine hand now, and touch all that he has, and he will curse thee to, my, to thy face. And Yahweh said unto Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power, only Upon himself put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of Yahweh. Now there's a lot of people that want to think that this had to happen in heaven because the sons of God must be angels because they appeared before Yahweh. And, and, and 
Satan was there. And that's how Satan, that's the Satan that saw Christ in the desert. And, and that's just wrong. Job is probably the Jobab of Genesis chapter 10, six or eight generations after Noah. That, that's, that, that's likely. It's not, it's not definite. It can't be proven. But there's some reason why the genealogy was carried down to Job in that branch of the family, which Abraham, that they were cousins of Abraham, but they didn't, they weren't in the same line as Abraham, right? So, so I think that that might be telling us that the Jobab in Genesis 10, Jobab could mean father Job, that, that's, um, that Ab means father in Hebrew that this might be this Job. It's immaterial whether it's this Job or not. This Job is definitely a descendant of Adam. And now I will read Revelation 12, verse 7. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels and prevailed not. Neither was their place found anymore in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out. That old serpent that has to be referring to the Genesis 3 serpent. That old serpent called the devil and Satan, who deceived the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Their place was not found anymore in heaven. So, that serpent is in the garden when Adam is there, before Adam has any sons. Therefore, Job, being a son of Adam, the Satan of Job's time, has to be here on earth, cannot be in heaven, because by Job's time, Satan's place was not found anymore in heaven, as John tells us in the Revelation, identifying Satan with that old serpent. So the Satan of Job, that that event could not possibly have taken place in heaven. We, we see in the, in the book, in, in the Hebrew law, and, and we see it phrased in, in the same manner, where, where it says that the, um, the, the children of Israel are to, are to appear at the temple three times a year. It says in the law that the children of Israel are to appear before Yahweh three times a year. So where it says in the book of Job that the sons of God appeared before Yahweh, I imagine that it's talking about much the same thing except in Job's time and not in the days of the temple. That these children of Noah had a gathering place where they had their communion, sort of like a, a, the later gatherings of the Hebrews. And that was their appearance before Yahweh. That's the way I, I see the book of Job. And the Satan, who was walking to and fro in the earth, well, well, that word is the simple Hebrew word for land. The Satan was walking up and down in the land. As Peter says, Satan walks about like a lion seeking whom he may devour. Well, that, that's been going on since the days of Cain. That's been going on since 
the days of the fallen angels. That's been going on since the dawn of time, probably, since the original rebellion, whenever that happened, which had to be before the time of Adam, because when Yahweh created Adam and placed him in the garden, as the scripture tells us in Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3, the serpent was already there. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was already there. as opposed to the tree of life, which is the race of Christ. So I see this book of Job in a very pragmatic way. The Satan of the book of Job is an individual who infiltrated in with the children of Adam and went along to the synagogue, if I have to use that term, or to the assembly place with them. We've seen that happening all throughout our history. A Jew will move into the community, and, and the next thing you know, he's at the Masonic Temple. <laughs> he, he's at the local church. He, he's um, at the Moose Lodge. He, he's spreading his, his Jew propaganda after he infiltrates, getting the community to um, undertake public works and, and bring in Negroes and cheap labor and stuff like that. They've been doing it since the dawn of time. Well, that's how I see the Satan, as one of those descendants of Cain who infiltrated in with the people in Job's community, and once he infiltrated in, started making like he was one of the children of Noah, and started accusing Job before God. According to um, Jude, verse 6, and 2 Peter 2, 4, the Satan which accused Job and the Satan which tempted Christ could not have been one of the angels of the original rebellion against God. And, and a lot of people see that word Satan, and right away they think that's that chief angel that rebelled against God. And, and that's their limit to the definition of that word. When the word Satan is used in a very wide term of all of the seed of the serpent, in, in the Bible. And, and that's very clear. If we examine all of the passages in the New Testament, where it appears. It's even used to Peter at one point, where Christ says, get behind me, Satan. He wasn't calling Peter Satan. He, what he was saying was, Peter, you're being adversarial to me because you're trying to go against God's plan. That's what he was saying. And the word Satan simply means adversary, adversary. That's it. In Jude, we see, talking about those original rebellious angels, Jude 6 says, And the messengers, or angels, not having kept their first dominion, but having forsaken their own habitation, are kept under darkness and everlasting bindings for the judgment of the great day. Likewise, 2 Peter 2, verse 4 says, For Yahweh did not spare the angels who sinned, but having cast them into Tartarus, into a pit of darkness, he had delivered them, being kept for judgment. Now, I read the Bible, I believe it, and, and I believe that's the fate of those original angels who sinned. Those angels who left their first estate. 
So the Satan in Job, which happened at a much later time, must be, although while part of the same entity, must be a different individual. And if we take Genesis 3 the way we in Christian identity believe it to mean the seed of the serpent being the offspring of those original rebels and those devils and and the, the adversary in this world, well, then we have to imagine that that seed of the serpent, that seed of the serpent is Satan. It's really a pretty simple concept. All of the descendants of Jacob Israel are anointed by God. John talks about the anointing we have received. We are the body of Christ. All of those descendants of Esau and Canaan and all the mixed and mingled races and, and of the, that original Union with Eve, and and not even that, but that there were more of them in the world. There was a whole tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the world. The serpent was only one of them. That's the way I see it. They are the adversary. They are collectively Satan. Those original angels being kept in chains of darkness or kept in bindings for the judgment of the great day, however you want to read that, it's clear to me that that Satan that tempted Job, that tempted Yahweh in, in relation to Job, that accused Job, and the Satan that appeared to Christ in the desert, the devil that appeared to Christ in the desert, they are of the offspring of the serpent. That is how I read that passage. You'll have to excuse me. My mouse battery decided to die right in the middle of the program. We certainly cannot deny the existence of spirits and demons. But people who spiritualize the Bible and who look to spiritual explanations for the biblical precepts, they're actually letting the real devil off the hook and giving the Jew license to do practically whatever he wants in the world. Just as the Genesis 3 serpent was a real person on this earth, so it is that Satan, who accused Job, was also a real person. For this reason, John tells us in his first epistle, Beloved, this is chapter 4 of 1 John, Beloved, do not have trust in every spirit, but scrutinize whether the spirits are from of Yahweh. Because many false prophets have gone out into society. John is telling us that these spirits that deceive us are walking around in bodies that appear to be men. Notice I said appear to be men. The Jews look like us, but they aren't quite us. The Christian's biggest failure is to ignore this advice of the apostle and not act on it. 
Yet by all of this, we can also see that when we fall victim to a banker or a prosecutor, just like the test of Job, it is a test for us, but ultimately it's for the glory of God. Just as the accuser of Job and the tempter of Christ were devils, so was Judas Iscariot. Christ said from John chapter 6, verse 70, Have I not chosen you twelve, yet one from among you is a devil? In my translation, I usually translate that phrase false accuser, because that's what the literal Greek language means, the, the literal Greek of the word. I'll discuss it later. So with that background, I'd like to move on to Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Then Yahshua had been led up into the desert by the Spirit to be tried by the false accuser. The Spirit of Yahweh led Yahshua Christ into the desert made him decide to go into the desert. And he was going to be tried there by the false accuser or by the devil. And fasting 40 days and 40 nights, afterwards he hungered. And coming forth, the tempter, and that's the literal Greek meaning of that word, said to him, If you are a son of Yahweh, and it says a son of Yahweh. It does not say the son of Yahweh, the son of God. The Greek does not have the article. It says if you are a son of God, speak in order that these stones would become wheat loaves, loaves of wheat bread. And responding, he, meaning Yahshua, he said, it is written, not by bread alone shall man live, but by every word going through the mouth of Yahweh, going out through the mouth of Yahweh. I'd like to quote, as an aside here, I would like to quote Deuteronomy from chapter 8, verse 1. Because people, um, what we love to hear from, even from people that don't know anything about the Bible, they say man doesn't live by bread alone that they have no idea what they're saying, right? Because they never finish it. And I'm sure our ancestors, when they first started using that as a proverb, that they knew what the rest of the Scripture was because they read their Bibles in the 19th century. Today, people don't read their Bibles. They have no idea what they're saying. They'll say, oh, man doesn't live by bread alone. They'll apply it to anything in their life. And the furthest thing from their thoughts is the law of God. Deuteronomy 8.1 says, Yahweh's words, All the commandments which I command thee this day shall ye observe to do, that ye may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which Yahweh sware unto your fathers. And thou shalt remember all the day which Yahweh thy God led thee these forty years in the wilderness to humble thee and to prove thee, or to try thee, to know what was in thine heart, whether thou would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger and fed thee with manna, which thou knewest not, neither did thy fathers know, that he might make thee know that man doth not live, man does not live by bread alone, 
but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of Yahweh does man live. In the next verse, this being is called Hodiabolos, the next verse of Matthew, chapter, verse 5 of chapter 4. Hodiabolos literally means he who casts by or casts across or casts through. It's used of a person in, in classical Greek that makes generally false accusations. It's an accuser, but it, it's that the implication of the word is that it, it is a false accuser. In Revelation chapter 12, we saw equated the great dragon that was cast out. That old serpent called the devil, that word is Hodiabolos, the false accuser, and Satan, which deceives the whole world. All those who oppose God... All those whose very essence and being is contrary to God, which is what the re original rebellion was all about against God, are therefore the, the embodiment of the idea of a false accuser and associated directly with the idea of an adversary or Satan. And this describes that entire race of the serpent's offspring, which is also called in the Revelation, the accuser of our brethren, in verse 12, chapter 10. And here we see an example, which is that devil which made false accusations concerning Job. Where Revelation 12, chapter 10, talking about this event, that this rebellion against God that had to happen before Adam was put here for that serpent to have been in the garden in the first place. The accuser of our brethren is cast down, meaning cast down to the earth. I'm not going to elaborate on, on, on that. Wesley Swift did that long before I could. That, the, um, that they are here in this world. And we see that this is one of them. The one that accused Job is one of them. This doesn't necessarily have to be, and I would claim that it could not be because of the, the words of Jude and the words of Peter, that those original devils, those original angelic beings that rebelled against Yahweh are locked in, in a pit, and bound in a pit awaiting judgment. That's the words of Jude and the words of Peter. And this being could not have been, therefore, one of them. It had to be one of their offspring, because they've always had offspring in this world, in the flesh. And we see that from Genesis 3.15 alone. Matthew chapter 4, verse 5. Then the false accuser takes him into the holy city, meaning Jerusalem, and stood him upon the wing of the temple. Now, that verb is istemi in Greek, and it means to cause or make to stand. And therefore, in hindsight, e even I could have done a better 
translation of this verse by writing that the false accuser had him stand upon the wing of the temple. Okay? So what we see here does not necessitate a supernatural event. This false accuser persuaded Christ to come with him, and, and Christ submitted to it because it was his temptation that had to be fulfilled in Scripture. The false accuser had Christ accompany him to the temple, and he had him stand on a wing of the temple. Okay, so this does not necessitate that we understand it to be a supernatural event. The language just doesn't insist on that. Yes, it can be used in that manner, but it doesn't insist on that. Verse 6, and he says to him, if you are a son of Yahweh, a son again, not the son, throw yourself down, for it is written that he commanded his messengers or angels concerning you, and by their hands they shall bear you, lest at any time you may strike your foot against a stone. Now, now, to me, it's important that this says a son of Yahweh. That's what the Greek says, and not the son of Yahweh. There's no article in the Greek. And, and that's, yeah, you know, for that same reason, it's written in the opening verses of the Gospel of John that, quote, but as many who received him, he gave to them the authority which the children of Yahweh are to attain. The authority the children of Yahweh would come to have to those believing in his name. We, those of us who are Israelites, who follow Christ, will be able to do everything that he did. That's the significance. That's important why this says, a son of Yahweh. We should all have that expectation, not simply the son of Yahweh, because Yahshua Christ is Yahweh himself. But the Greek says, a son of Yahweh, and that, that's an important distinction to understand that. All of those who... who um are of the children of Israel who follow Christ will all have the ability to do the same things which Christ had done while he was here, and more, as he himself tells us later in the scripture, that we should be able to do those things also. The quote is from Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12, where it says that he commanded his angels concerning you, and by their hands they shall bear you, lest at any time you may strike your foot against a stone. I would like to also read the next verse of that psalm, Psalm 91.13, where it says, Thou shalt tread upon the lion and the adder, the young lion and the dragon, thou shalt trample under feet. The word lion here, I believe, is only an allegory for a strong man. At Luke chapter 11, which it often is in Scripture, at Luke chapter 10, verses 18 and 19, Yahshua said, I beheld the adversary falling as lightning from heaven. Yahshua said, I beheld Satan falling as lightning from heaven. That's because Yahshua Christ was Yahweh, and he saw that war between Michael and his angels and the dragon and his angels. And the dragon fell, and his angels fell, and their place was found not any longer in heaven. And that had to happen before the time of Adam. Behold, I have given to you authority to tread upon serpents and scorpions. So we see that this quote from the Psalms is related to Christ's words in Luke 10, 18 and 19.
and upon all the power of the enemy. And no one shall by any means do you injustice. Christ wasn't talking to the apostles about disembodied spirits only. Christ was talking to the apostles about the, the ability to cast out demons. And the ability to cast out demons, that gives us some insight into the nature of the enemy. But the demons were being cast out because they were inhabiting human bodies. And I will get into demons a little later on. But power over, authority over all the power of the enemy is absolutely in the flesh. When we stay in the word of God and live the word of God, and understand the word of God concerning our enemies and their nature, they have no power over us. Verse 7, And Yahshua said to him, Again it is written, You shall not tempt Yahweh your God. The quote is explicit. It's from Deuteronomy 6, verse 16. Verse 8, Again, the false accuser takes him to an exceedingly high mountain and shows to him all the kingdoms of the society and their splendor. And he said to him, I shall give to you all these, if falling, you shall worship me. Well, the world belongs to our enemies. When Adam accepted Eve in her sin, he also accepted Cain. Cain became his firstborn son. Just as Joseph was told by the angel to accept the pregnant Mary, and because Joseph accepted the pregnant Mary, therefore Christ became Joseph's lawful heir and received the scepter of Judah through Joseph, whose scepter it was, except for the curse of Jeconiah. So it was also with Adam and Cain. It was the same it was the exact opposite of the same situation. The apostle wrote at one John five nineteen that quote we know that we are from of Yahweh and the whole society lies in the power of the evil one. Paul wrote in two Corinthians chapter four, verse four, of the God of this world, and he was talking about this same thing. Christ stated at John 12, 31, quote, Now judgment is of this society or world. Now the ruler of this society or world shall be cast out. That hasn't happened yet. Christ's words being prophetic. As soon as Christians accept and act upon the words of Christ, the rulers of this society shall indeed be cast out. Christians just haven't yet practiced Christianity. Of course, Christ was speaking prophetically because at John 14.30, he says, quote, No longer shall I discuss many things with you, for the ruler of society comes, or of this world comes, and does not have anything in me. And he had to be talking about the high priests and the Sadducees. And in verse 16, Chapter 16, verse 11, 
Then concerning judgment, because the ruler of this society has been judged. By killing God, the false accuser is guilty of the ultimate sin. Matthew 4, verse 10. Then Yahshua says to him, Go away, adversary, for it is written. That now we see there's no challenge to Satan's claim, to this adversary's claim, that he, the kingdoms of this world, are his to give or to take, to give to whomever he pleases to rule over them. That's a fact of this age. It's a fact of this age ever since Eve gave to Adam the fruit and Adam ate too. And Cain was told, and it has nothing to do with the sin, I'm well aware of the Jewish interpretations of Genesis 4-7. Cain was told that he would rule over Abel. Because that is the natural order of things, and because God does things in accordance with his own natural order even if we don't always understand that order. Then Yahshua says to him, Go away, adversary, or Satan, for it is written, Yahweh your God shall you worship, and you shall serve him only. Now the quote is from one of a couple of places in Deuteronomy. But the adversary cannot be the your of that scripture, for it is meant to refer to the Israelite receiving the law, and therefore Christ himself, He's saying that the scripture applies to him and not to the adversary. Christ himself is the subject in this instance of this statement. Verse 11. Then the false accuser, or the devil, leaves him, and behold, messengers, or angels, came forth and served him. James 2.19 says, You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe it, and they shudder. The Judeo-Christians say, all I have to do is believe in Jesus, and I'm saved. Well, James 2.19 says that even the Jews, even the devil, believes that there is one God. So the Judeo-Christians fall short. Being a Christian takes a hell of a lot more responsibility than that. Every word which proceeds from the mouth of Christ. And from the mouth of Yahweh. Verse 12. And having heard that John had been handed over or arrested, he withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth, having come, he settled in Capernaum by the sea in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali. Many take this word Capernaum to mean the village of Nahum as in the prophet but it also simply and literally means village of comfort. Whether it actually refers to Nahum or not is highly debatable. And we'll probably never know. The arrest of John the Baptist happened quite early in the ministry of Christ, and it's mentioned also in Mark chapter 1, Luke chapter 3, and in the Gospel of John at chapter 3, verse 24. Matthew 4.14, 4, 
in order that that which had been spoken through Isaiah the prophet would be fulfilled, saying, Land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by way of the sea opposite the Jordan. The King James there says beyond Jordan, and I'm going to discuss that at length. Circuit of the nations. The people sitting in darkness have seen a great light. I understand the King James there says Galilee of the nations. I'm going to explain that at length. The people sitting in darkness have seen a great light. And for those sitting in the region and shadow of death, a great light has risen up for them. From that time, Yahshua began to proclaim and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of the heavens has neared. I'm going to, um, to the best of my ability, I'm going to discuss this prophecy. Matthew is quoting, he's taking advantage of Isaiah 9-1 and quoting it in relation to Christ's ministry in ministering in Galilee. Now I will follow my paper, Galilee of the Gentiles, which is a question. This prophecy concerning Galilee of the Gentiles is a quote of Isaiah 9-1, where the King James Version, at Isaiah 9-1, has it Galilee of the nations. Matthew 4.14 infers that Isaiah's prophecy would be fulfilled when Yahshua left Nazareth, Matthew 4.13, for, quote-unquote, from the King James, Galilee of the Gentiles. I would ask, was that alone the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy? And Matthew 4.16, which is a quote of Psalm 23, verse 4. I would say certainly not. Certainly not this one act Certainly not can this one act be a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. Rather, it was only the commencement, the beginning of the fulfillment of this prophecy. And this prophecy would take quite some time to fulfill. Matthew next describes the calling of the apostles by Yahshua. I won't read it yet. It's from verse four, chapter 4, verse 18. Eleven of those apostles were evidently of the tribe of Benjamin. A discussion of the twelve, Judas Iscariot, is beyond the scope of our purpose here, and we will discuss him at length later in the series. Many of the people of Benjamin and Levi settled in Galilee after the return from Babylon. We see Joseph and, and, and um, the kin, kinsfolk of Mary in, in um in the land of Galilee, in Benjamin. That they settled in Galilee after the return from Babylon is evident from the scriptures, Ezra and Nehemiah. Saul of Tarsus, who was called much later to be an apostle, was also of the tribe of Benjamin. When the ancient kingdom of Israel was divided after Solomon's death, Benjamin although it belonged to 
Well, well, Benjamin was Ephraim's brother, right? Benjamin clearly belonged with with the northern tribes. However, Benjamin was left with the tribe of Judah for the very purpose described here and, and also prophesied in 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 9 through 13 and verse 36, that Benjamin would be left to be a light before Judah. These apostles of this tribe were fulfilling their duties as the light bearers to Israel and first to Judah. But Galilee, the land of Galilee, the land we know later as Galilee, did not originally belong to Benjamin. When the land was divided, Towns in the territory of Naphtali were said to be in Galilee, Joshua chapter 20, verse 7. Now, would Isaiah say that the region of Galilee and Palestine belonged to Gentiles or even to non-Israelite nations, knowing, and Isaiah knew this, that the land belonged to Israel, all of the land of Galilee was in the territory of Israel. I believe it's highly unlikely that Isaiah would say that. Reading Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1, there is still much more to the phrase Galilee of the nations than this. Let me read Isaiah 9.1. Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation, when at first he lightly affected, afflicted, I'm sorry, talking about Yahweh, he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea beyond Jordan, in Galilee of the nations. How could Zebulun and Naphtali be afflicted, quote, by the way of the sea beyond Jordan in Galilee of the nations. That truly does not describe the Sea of Galilee at all or the region of Galilee. Because the region of Galilee is not beyond the Jordan. And there is no discussion in the Old Testament describing any shipping traffic by Zebulun or Naphtali in that small sea. Even in the time of Christ, the Sea of Galilee was plied by little more than small fishing craft, and some of those craft have been found at date to the time of Christ. So what else can this statement of Isaiah mean? The word beyond in Isaiah 9-1 is the Hebrew word Eber, Strong's number 5676. And it can also mean opposite, among other things. It is the word from which the names Eber and Hebrew are both derived. In the King James Version, the word is represented by a wide range of meanings, including from, over, passage, quarter, other side, this side, straight, etc., depending on the context.
According to Strong's, and many of those translations are quite proper in the context in which they appear. For instance, the word means over in the phrase over against at Exodus 25.37. And the Thomas Nelson King James Study Bible I have footnotes in front of. The phrase, the, the word is this side at Numbers 22.1, Numbers 32.19, and Numbers 32.32. So the use of the word at Isaiah 9, verse 1, does not necessitate that the sea, or the way of the sea, referred to here, is east of the Jordan River, or in the Sea of Galilee, or is the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee, as we know it in the New Testament, that's actually a source of the Jordan River. It's not beyond the Jordan River at all. The word Galilee Strong's number 1551 is derived from the Hebrew word Delilah, with the G, Galilah, Strong's number 1552, which means a circuit or a region. In Hebrew, the proper noun and the noun which it is derived from are spelled with the same identical characters, with slightly different vowel points, but the vowel points are the work of the Masoretes. There's no distinction between the words in Paleo-Hebrew. In the Hebrew of Isaiah's time, there are no vowel points. And all the letters are written in the uppercase, in the inscriptions anyway. So therefore, in Hebrew, these two words, 1551 and 1552, are indistinguishable. It is evident that they could be easily confused. The Sea of Galilee was never called the Sea of Galilee in the Old Testament. The name Galilee, the name itself, appears only at Joshua, chapter 20, verse 7, chapter 21, verse 32, in 1 Kings 9, in 2 Kings 15, and in 1 Chronicles 6, and here in Isaiah 9, 1. But Galilee was not used of the sea. It was used instead only of the name of an undefined region in northern Israel. At least part of that region lied in the land of Naphtali. The Sea of Galilee, which it was called in the New Testament period, the Sea of Galilee is always called the Sea of Kinnereth or the Sea of Kinneroth. Strong's number 3672. It's mentioned in Numbers chapter 34, Deuteronomy 3, Joshua 11, 12, 13, and 19. The Sea of Kinnereth. Additionally, it is quite clear from Scripture that half of the coastline of the Sea of Galilee was adjoined by land belonging to the tribe of Naphtali, while the balance was adjoined by the lands of the Geshurites and the Maccathites, citing Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 14, and Joshua chapter 13, verses 17 through 13. Now, Geshur was considered a part of the land of Aram, or Syria, and the Arameans were Semites, and they were related to the Israelites. The Maccathites 
They were also related to the Israelites through Abraham's brother Nahor. For that, you could check Genesis 22, verse 24. They remained a distinct kingdom. 1 Chronicles 19, 6, and 7, they are mentioned again. Genesis 49.13 states that Zebulun would dwell among ships bordering Sidon at the haven of the sea, and he shall be for a haven of ships, and his border shall be unto Sidon. Zebulun's inherited land was neither near Sidon, nor was it near any sea, nor was it near the Sea of Galilee or the Sea of Kinneroth. It's described in Joshua chapter 19. It should be manifest by this point that Galilee of the Gentiles need not indicate the Sea of Galilee at all. In fact, Galilee of the Gentiles, or even Galilee of the nations, really makes no sense. But that's not necessarily how Matthew understood it. If one has a knowledge, first let me say, if one has any knowledge concerning Israel's early migrations into Europe, then reading Isaiah 9-1 in this manner, quote, and afterward did more grievously afflict them by way of the sea opposite Jordan in the region of the nations, makes perfectly good sense. Where did the light bearers of Benjamin go after the passion of the Christ? Where did they go upon leaving Palestine? They went to the people who walked in darkness, the Israelites of the dispersion of Europe and Asia Minor. Most so-called scholars, and especially the Jews, would have us believe that the seafaring Phoenicians of Tyre, Sidon, and elsewhere were a people distinct from the Israelites, and they and that they were Canaanites at that. That's what the Jews want you to believe, that the Phoenicians were Canaanites. If that were so, then when the Phoenicians settled what today we know as Spain and Portugal, they would have called the place Sidonia or Canania and not Iberia. An examination of Scripture, and especially the Septuagint, reveals that the people whom the Greeks called Phoenicians, the word does not appear at all until the time of Homer in the 7th century, Homer was a contemporary of Hosea and Isaiah. Those people that the Greeks called Phoenicians originally were certainly Israelites. Yet even the Septuagint, some centuries later, in its translation, sometimes confused Canaanites with the Phoenicians. Now it was somewhat true in 280 BC when the Septuagint was begun to be translated that the Canaanites were, that the people of Phoenicia were, for the most part, Canaanites. But it was not true of the period which Homer was writing about, long before deportations of the Israelites. Long after the Israelites were deported by Assyria, the Greeks continued to call the land Phoenicia. And of the Canaanites, and whatever remnant of Israel remained, the Greeks continued to call those people Phoenicians. Joshua 11, 
verse 8 in the King James states, And Yahweh delivered them, meaning the Canaanite army, into the hand of Israel who smote them, and they chased them under great Sidon and in the, unto Mizrafoth main, and unto the valley of Mizpeh eastward, and they smote them until they left none remaining. At Joshua 13, verse 6, we read, All the inhabitants of the hill country from Lebanon unto Mizrephoth, Maine, and all the Sidonians, them will I drive out from before the children of Israel, only divide it by lot unto the Israelites for an inheritance, as I have commanded thee. The name Sidon described both the city on the coast of Palestine and the region around it, and it also described the Canaanite descendants of Sidon who inhabited it. It could be a racial term or a geographical term. Later, we find that while the Israelites surely did inhabit the entire region of Sudan, they failed to drive off all the Canaanite and, and the other tribes. And I'll quote Judges 3, verses 1 to 3. Now these are the nations which Yahweh left to prove Israel by them, even as many of Israel as had not known all the wars of Canaan, namely five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites that dwelt in Mount Lebanon, from Baal Hermon unto the entering in of Hermath. The region and the city of Sidon became a part of the territory of the tribe of Asher. That's very clear in Joshua. Described in Joshua 19, verses 24 through 31. We're also informed in Judges, chapter 1, that Canaanites continued to dwell in the city of Sidon. But Tyre, the city of Tyre, quickly became the prominent Phoenician city. And that was also in the territory of Asher or at least the mainland city was, since there is not yet mention of the island off the coast. But we're told all of the cities where Canaanites remained, and Tyre is never mentioned as a city where Canaanites remained. In the Septuagint, at Joshua 19, it discusses Asher's inheritance, which goes all the way to Sidon, And also includes the fountain of Mathasad, I'm sorry, and the Tyrians. But a little further on in Joshua 19, talking about Naphtali's inheritance in 1935, it says, And the walled cities of the Tyrians, Tyre, and Omasadekath, and Kenareth. Now, Kenareth is very close to that word Kinneroth, which is what the Sea of Galilee was called in the oldest times, in the Old Testament. The Septuagint version is quite different than that found in the King James. The cities of Tyre are not within Naphtali's territory, but we're told that Naphtali inherited, inherited Tyre, which was actually on the coast of the territory of Asher. Now, I repeat all this to show that the children of Israel inhabited the cities that were known to us through the historians as Phoenician cities. It's very clear. It's very clear in the Bible that Asher inhabited the coast of the Mediterranean and not Canaanites. 
we see in Judges, it right in the King James Version of the Bible, in Judges chapter 5, verse 17, Asher continued on the seashore and abode in his breeches. Breaches, the Hebrew word mifrats, can be translated havens or inlets. It's a word which means a break in the shore. In the Egyptian records of the 18th dynasty, which predates the Israelite conquest of Canaan, the city Tyre is called Taru the Haven. And it is said to be of the island off the coast where water is carried to its banks and it's richer in fish than in sands. So we see the children of Israel inhabited the coasts. The children of Israel inhabited the cities, later known to the Greeks as Phoenician cities. When the Phoenicians did all of their colonization of the Mediterranean, we see there the tribe of Zebulun, the tribe of Naphtali, and the tribe of Asher. They're the Phoenicians. Amos 3.11 in the Septuagint, Micah 7.12, and many other verses support my contention that the children of Israel were indeed the Phoenicians. It is only well after the deportations of the Israelites, the translators of the scriptures for the Septuagint had in diverse places through their translation associated Phoenicians with Canaanites. Yet the Israelites were long removed from the land by the time the Septuagint was translated. But the inhabitants of the island city of Tyre were never deported by the Assyrians or the Babylonians. After the beginning of the Persian period, the Tyrians were subject to Persia, and they spread themselves back to the mainland. The island city was destroyed for good by Alexander the Great in 330 B.C., but it is evident that many Israelites did remain in the area and maintain their identity for quite some time. That is how, in the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 2, verse 36, we see mentioned Anna, the prophetess of the tribe of Asher. Because the Ashers of the, main, of, of the island city of Tyre kept their identity. They were never taken away by the Babylonians or the Assyrians. I could say much more about this, drawn not only from the scripture, but from history and archaeology to demonstrate that the Israelites were one and the same with the Phoenicians of history, who were the people who settled not only much of the North African coasts and what we know today as Spain, they also settled the British Isles, the northern coast of Europe, the coast of Anatolia, today's Turkey, and also made up much of the original Greek and Roman populations. All of these cultures having their roots in both Israelite and also other Semite and the Japhethite tribes of Genesis chapter 10. But hopefully enough has been said to illuminate that the true meaning of the expression Galilee of the nations, Galilee being a Hebrew word which means a circuit or a region, the true meaning of the expression Galilee of the Gentiles is actually the region of the nations found at Isaiah 9.1, and Matthew 4.15, that is how I would read that. Matthew 4, verse 18, 
And walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two men, Simon, who was called Petrus, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he says to them, Come after me, and I shall make you fishers of men. This is the commencement of Isaiah's prophecy. The, the phrase, Galilee of the nations, or circuit of the nations, or region of the nations, it's being used by Matthew to describe this event that Christ chooses his apostles in Galilee. But the phrase has a double meaning, because the apostles were to bring light to the people to the people that sat in darkness, the dispersed Israelites in Europe. That's the real region of the nations, which is a, which is a very proper translation of what we see in the Bible as Galilee of the Gentiles. It actually means the region of the nations. That's where the apostles were headed. The nations which descended from Israel, who at this time dwelt all around the coasts of the Mediterranean and the coasts of Europe. And he says to them, come after me and I shall make you fishers of men. A fulfillment of the first half of Jeremiah 16.16, 16, that I will send many fishers. And immediately having left the nets, they followed him. Matthew, writing long after the fact, does not here relate the account where Simon began to be called Peter. He relates that in, in, in Matthew chapter 16. Andreas here, or Andrew, as it is in the King James, we see here he is the brother of Peter. He's also mentioned together very often with Philip later in Scripture. All three of these men, Peter and Andrew, who was his brother, and Philip, were all from the same town, a small town named Bethsaida, which means in Hebrew, the house of fish. They were fishermen. Verse 21. And proceeding from there, he saw two other brothers. Jacobus, Jacob, the son of Zebedahius, Zebedee, and Johannes, his brother, John, his brother, in the vessel with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them, and immediately leaving, immediately leaving the vessel and their father, they followed him. Amazing. That's the word of God. This Jacob is the one who was killed by Herod later, which is described in Acts chapter 12. John here, the son of Zebedee, is the beloved apostle John, the author of the gospel and the author of the three epistles bearing his name, and the recorder of the revelation. Verse 23. And he went around in all Galilee, teaching in their assembly halls and proclaiming the good message of the kingdom and healing every disease and every weakness among the people. And the report of him had gone out into all of Syria, 
And they brought to him all those being ill with various diseases and those afflicted with trials and those possessed by demons and epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And many crowds followed him from Galilee and Decapolis, which actually means the region of ten cities, and, and it, was opposite, it, it was on the other side of the Jordan. And Jerusalem and Judea and beyond the Jordan. Those possessed by demons. The fragments of the book of Enoch, I'm quoting from my paper, The Problem with Genesis 6, 1-4. The fragments of the book of Enoch found among the Dead Sea Scrolls agree to a great extent with Charles's book of Enoch, which was translated from an entirely different source. Texts found in Ethiopia, which had been maintained there for many centuries. While they shall not all be cited here, representative of the Enoch literature relating to Genesis 6 events is the scroll known as 4Q202, which is 4Q Enoch B Aramaic, column 2. This text corresponds to Enoch, to 1 Enoch, chapter 5, verses 9, through chapter 6, verse 4, and chapter 6, verse 7, through chapter 8, verse 1, that we find in the Charles edition. From the Dead Sea Scrolls, I will read it. All the days of their life, it happened that when in those days the sons of men increased, pretty and attractive daughters were born to them. The watchers, the sons of the sky, saw them and lusted for them, and said to each other, Let's go and choose out women from among the daughters of men and sire for ourselves sons. The same scroll contributes to this event, the creation of evil spirits. In scroll in the scroll known as 4Q204, it says, Exterminate all the spirits of the bastards and the sons of the watchers. Now that seems to have been speaking prophetically. It hasn't been accomplished yet. However, it is very clear in the Enoch literature and in those same parts of the book of Enoch that Jude and Peter quoted from and Paul referred to, it is very clear in this apocryphal literature that evil spirits and demons, the, the idea of a demon in Greek is a lesser spirit that is not a god. That's what a demon is in Greek. That's the definition that you will find in the Liddell and Scott lexicon, English-Greek lexicon. A demon is an, a wicked, evil spirit that is not a god. That now, um, a, a, a spirit lesser than God. That now, the Enoch literature tells us that evil spirits and demons have their origin in bastards, people of mixed race, the people who were the offspring of the angels that sinned, and the members of our race. Take that for what you will. 
we don't really find that in the official, quote-unquote, official books of the Bible. But Jude and Peter, having quoted these very same sections of Enoch, I think that this would also be their understanding. Jude talks about those people of mixed race, the people that had, and, and Peter mentions this also, those people who had gone in a way of Cain, which means they were race mixed, who followed after the error of Balaam, which means they were race mixed. He says that when they dine with us unworthily because they're not the children of Israel, when they share our communion unworthily because they're not of our brethren, he calls them clouds without water, meaning they don't have the Spirit of God. They're broken cisterns. He says they're like evil beasts made to be taken and destroyed. So we see the source of wicked spirits. These have to be those people that John, 1 John chapter 4, John says that these people, what we are to examine every spirit, meaning every person that comes to us, to see if it's from Yahweh. And John goes on to explain that there are spirits of people created in the world, and there are spirits that belong to us because we are born from Yahweh that proceed from God, that come from God. That's the spirit given to our Adamic race. The other spirits, the non-Adamic spirits, according to 1 John chapter 4, they were created here in the world. In other words, by violation to God's law. They are bastards. John doesn't talk about any third kind of spirit. So that's the source of demons according to the book of Enoch. And I will leave this with those words. Thank you, and I'll be here next week with Matthew chapter 5 and the Sermon on the Mount and a more positive topic. But the, um, I hope that I don't that I, I hope to do more than one chapter a week of Matthew. I know that these last these first four chapters of Matthew have been quite long. I don't want to um, I, I want to be able to share all that I can about each of these gospels and and not cut anything short so so if it takes me one night to one week to do a chapter that's the way it is that the um and if it takes 28 weeks to do Matthew that's what it's going to take me I can't help it I have to share everything I can and and thank you for listening and praise Yahweh good night